1972, Joey Gallo killed in Little Italy during dinner at Umberto's Clam House. They get there by violence, and often as not, they leave by violence. Between three and five million dollars in cash and valuables was taken from the Lufthansa cargo terminal out at Kennedy Airport. I can give you guys a half a million dollars a year without a problem. New York City is a war zone for mobsters and their targets. Hello everyone and welcome into episode 34 of The Black Hand, an organized crime history podcast. I'm your host, Bliss Grieve, and on today's show we're going to be talking about the Cowboy Mafia, a group of marijuana traffickers who operated in the United States during the 1970s and at the time were the most prolific drug smugglers in Texas. Before we get started, if you want to support the show, please go follow the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at the Black Hand Pod, and please feel free to reach out. Also consider giving a little bit to the show's Venmo at the Black Hand Pod as well, but without further ado, let's get right into today's episode. The story of the Cowboy Mafia largely begins with two men, named Rex Cobble and Charles Muscles Foster. Rex Cobble was born on August 15, 1913 in the Hill County town of Vaughn, Texas to cotton farmers named Fred Cobble and Lou Butts. One of his first jobs was in the oil field where he worked as a roughneck. He tried his own hand at drilling and was successful at it. And it was in the oil business that Cobble would make his fortune, which he would eventually invest in horses, another line of work that would become incredibly lucrative for him. In the 1960s, he and his wife came together to create Cobble Enterprises, and with the money they made from that company, Rex bought a racehorse named Cutter Bill, which went on to win the American Quarter Horse Association honor roll in 1962, amongst other competitions. And it was really his move into the horse trade that put Cobble in a position to meet Charles Foster in the grandstand of the horse business in 1960. Foster himself knew horses as he had grown up in the rodeo riding bulls and broncos for not much money. He traded his first horse before his voice broke for a $90 cow and a Mickey Mouse watch. And from then on, he knew he had a gift for buying low and selling high as far as horses were concerned. Some of the big men of the Texas horse world like the Caruse and the Phillips extended lines of credit to Foster to buy mares for them and he quickly earned a reputation as one of the sharpest traders in the country. And not long after they met, Rex became just another one of Foster's millionaire clients. But when Charles fell on hard times and landed himself in a mental hospital for three months, he asked Rex for a job. So he hired Foster to breed mares and break horses, and within months had promoted him to be the overseer of all his property, which included several ranches and many smaller lots around the state. However, during the late 60s, Rex also acquired a steel company, welding company, and a horse trailer company in Fort Worth. He even founded two western wear clothing stores he named Cutter Bill's Western World with locations in Houston and Dallas by the late 1960s. They featured fancified western clothes at extravagant prices, eventually resulting in them being dubbed, quote, the Neiman Marcus of western wear by the Los Angeles Times. By this point, Cobble wasn't just a well-renowned businessman, but also a bigwig in the local political scene. And through large and frequent campaign donations, he was able to become close with some of the most influential politicians in the state, notably a man named John Connolly. When Connolly made his first run for governor in 1962, he asked Rex to be one of his campaign coordinators. And after he was elected, he appointed Cobble to the Texas Aeronautics Commission, which was a small-time agent that built Boondocks airports. Until the following year, when some of the governor's friends and business associates invested in Southwest Airlines stock. Then the TAC became quite a conspicuous place to be, especially during Rex's reign as chairman. When he forced through rulings in favor of the infant commuter airline and once pushed out another commissioner who had posed an objection concerning the use of the TAC staff. 
Cobble also became a member of the Special Texas Rangers, an organization of law enforcement enthusiasts, cattlemen, corporate executives, and lobbyists who were allowed to carry guns and badges. He subsequently got acquainted with some of the characters in the Department of Public Safety's Narcotics Division. Rex always had an affinity for the rogues and the con men who were an established part of the high-rolling fraternity of Texas oil barons in which he was a charter member. He became a patron of the DPS narcs, using them for part-time security work and frequently lending them flash money in the use of his plane. At one time, he had up to four ex-DPS agents working for him, and in exchange they made him an honorary member of the Texas Narcotics Officers Association. But while Cobble was on the rise, so was Charles Foster, because over the 14 years that he worked for Rex, his responsibilities increased until he either controlled or had access to the entire Cobble empire, including the ranches, airplanes, stores, and the Long Branch Saloon, a Denton night spot that Rex had established to provide for Foster's retirement. Yet as great as his authority was, he would never string together more than a few months at a time before he would disappear, usually when Rex was trying to coax him to go into a mental hospital. Cobble would curse his name for weeks, then in the middle of the night, a collect call would come from a bus station and Rex would wire him the money to get home. Once Foster went over the hill carrying the keys to every lock on the ranch, leaving 19 mares that he had bred to three different studs. A couple of weeks later, the keys arrived in the mail and Rex blew up again. Foster finally turned up in Georgia at the ranch of a man named Ray Hawkins who seemed to be part horseman and part hippie. Hawkins lured Foster to Georgia with a simple request, to break in some horses for him. But when he arrived, Foster realized that the work wasn't exactly what he had been promised. Fortunately, a $20,000 payday was more than enough to assuage any frustration about his actual task, unloading a huge load of marijuana recently shipped in from Florida. This was Foster's first taste of big money, and for the first time, his dream of becoming a big shot like his revered mentor Rex was coming into focus, but this was also the first time that Cobble's name showed up on the Fed's radar who eventually shared his plan to make millions by smuggling marijuana over the water from Colombia and through Florida. And when Foster took a company trip to his first visit in Georgia, he was unaware that Gerties was being surveilled by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. So when Charles arrived, an agent scribbled down the number of the Texas license plate and later learned that it was registered to a horse trailer company owned by Cobble Enterprises, but that wouldn't become important until later on. Despite that, Foster was about to fall even deeper into the smuggling operation run by Hawkins and Gerties, which wasn't unusual for the time. Because in the early 70s, younger men like Gerties who were living on the Gulf Coast of Florida realized they could take advantage of the local shortage of marijuana by making a quick run to Jamaica, where weed was plentiful and sold for $10 a pound at the time. So they would make the trip in a 28-foot boat and unload their suspicious cargo in the docks of the marina in the Tampa Bay area, thus beginning the modern age of marijuana smuggling. And even if Carlos Gerties wasn't there at the inception, he was certainly around for the infancy, with one of his friends estimating that Gerties made at least $10 million from smuggling in the St. Petersburg area. The geographical advantage of basing a smuggling ring in Florida was its proximity to the Caribbean, but by 1975, the U.S. government had largely destroyed the Jamaican pot fields, forcing American buyers to Colombia. At the same time, the state of Florida had instituted more stringent drug laws and big-time smugglers like Carlos were lying low and looking for a new base of operations. So when Foster appeared at Raymond Hawkins Ranch carrying the keys both literally and figuratively to the Cobble Empire, Gerties thought he had found the perfect solution. And even though Foster still claims that he only went to Georgia to break horses, like we talked about, while in the state, an agent with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation who was keeping Gerties under surveillance thought to write down the license number of the vehicle Foster was driving. It was registered to a horse trailer company in Fort Worth, and after the computer had done its work, the name Rex Cobble had made its first appearance in the records of narcotics agents all over the country. 
Accordingly, the government's case against Rex really began immediately after Foster returned to Denton, Texas in 1976. According to Rex, Foster said that he was interested in going into the shrimping business, and as unlikely as that might have been, Rex contacted a boat broker in Aransas Pass and told him that Foster would be in touch about the purchase of a shrimp boat. Charles went down to meet the broker, and soon after that, in August 1976, Carlos Gerdes appeared and purchased a steel-hulled shrimp boat called the Monkey. Then in December of the same year, Foster visited Willis Butler, a man he had befriended when they were teenagers. When Foster visited, Willis was in the milk business driving a dairy truck. So Willis was surprised when Foster appeared with a cashier's check for $15,000 drawn on the Denton Bank owned by Rex Cobble and told him that he was on his way to Columbia to set up a dope deal. Two months later, in February 1977, Foster was back in Texas and on the phone with Willis. He had some errands that needed doing in the Beaumont area and he told Willis that he was willing to pay $50,000. Once there, Foster stationed Willis on Sabine Pass with a pair of binoculars and told him to watch out for the monkey, which was loaded with drugs, and to contact the crew when it came into view. Unfortunately, the first shipment was delayed and it was three days before Foster remembered Willis and went back to find him asleep in his car on the side of the road. But when the ship had finally heaved into port loaded with more than 30,000 pounds of marijuana, Foster had redeemed himself. So he subsequently cleared out the foreman on Rex's Meridian Ranch in Fort Worth so the smugglers could use it to divide the shipment and distribute it to the buyers. Willis would drive the weed to a ranch and attract a trailer while Carlos Gerdes handled the books and distribution. However, it took the first shipment for Foster to realize that the most dangerous part of the smuggling operation was finding a safe place to unload the drugs, so he went searching. And while he combed the coast, he came up with a spot near High Island in the separately populated stretch between Galveston and Port Arthur, Texas under a bridge that crossed the Gulf Intercoastal Highway. And it was there that Foster built the Thompson Seafood Company. And not long after finding an offloading spot, as many as four boats were making runs to Columbia and every trip is worth millions. One of the smugglers later testified that they bought the weed in Columbia for $25 a pound and sold it in Texas for $200 a pound. Which meant that after expenses, the average load of 35,000 pounds would net around $5 million. But of course, with the money came law enforcement. By this point, federal lawmen had already begun an investigation of Cobble's enterprises, bringing with them a series of subpoenas for financial records and other documents. The Texas Rangers had even already stumbled onto some marijuana sweepings at one of the Cobble ranches, but the investigation had been dropped. Possibly because Rex was one of the principal sponsors of the Ranger Museum in Waco, or because of Rex's long-running membership in the Texas Narcotics Officers Association. Or maybe it was because of the way the political situation was shaping up as Rex stood to become the next commissioner for public safety. He was a strong supporter of then-attorney John Hill in his race for governor, and the rumor was that if Hill won, he would put Rex in charge of all state law enforcement. However, while Rex was chasing his dreams of becoming a politician, Foster was about to pull a move that would put the entire smuggling operation in jeopardy. And while he was returning from a routine pickup in Columbia, Foster passed up his invisible seafood company near High Island and reached through Sabine Pass right up to the public docks in Port Arthur where he had reserved a spot to unload the shipment. But once Foster and the crew left the open ocean, the smell that had trailed them all the way through the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico caught up with them. They passed right in front of the Coast Guard station and docked next to some other shrimpers that were gassing up at the docks, only two blocks from the county courthouse in downtown Port Arthur. In all honesty, however, they had been as good as caught well before they even left the port. The entire operation had been running like a well-oiled machine. But the authorities trying to bring it down had been pulling rank and fighting jurisdictional problems for the entire 22 days that the boat was at sea. In the end, everyone got in on the bus which began as soon as two members of the smuggling ring named Willis Butler and Jamie Holland and some of the cowhands arrived with tractor trailers to unload the boat. 
Then, out of nowhere, every kind of law enforcement agent you could imagine popped up. Customs agents, treasury agents, DEA agents, DPS narcs, and even the Galveston County Sheriff, who was 80 miles outside of his jurisdiction. The 20 tons or 40,000 pounds of marijuana taken out of the boat's hold were quickly described as the largest amount of drugs ever seized in the Beaumont-Port Arthur area. In the usual escalation of real values into street values, the feds estimated the pot to be worth $24 million, and the case fell within the jurisdiction of the Assistant U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Texas, David Baugh. But a marijuana case, no matter how big, isn't the prize notch on a prosecutor's belt. At the time the Cowboy Mafia case came down, possession of marijuana was no longer a crime in 11 states, and mere possession was seldom prosecuted in federal courts unless intent to distribute is proved. The mixed national attitudes reflected in the variety of laws and penalties from state to state invited comparisons to liquor prohibition. David Baugh himself had talked about having to surrender certain behaviors when he became a federal prosecutor and he sometimes wore a gold marijuana leaf on his lapel. Back in Denton, however, an attorney named Bill Trantham got a call from Charles Foster. Trantham's office was only a few steps from the Western State Bank, where Rex Cobble's office was, and as an attorney, he had frequently performed legal service for Cobble Enterprises. Foster told Trantham about what had happened and gave him $20,000 to bail them out, so Trantham drove all night to Beaumont, and when he arrived, he found the bail set at $1.6 million. But in the prosecutor's office, the happy realization had dawned that this case was far bigger than it had seemed. So the government set out to establish its bargaining position. While around the courthouse, reporters were casually informed that the kingpin of the operation was a man named Les Fuller, who in reality was a mere worker like Willis Butler. That's because the word kingpin in the cowboy mafia case was like a tail in search of a donkey, and the one who got stuck with it got the heaviest charges, that of running a continuing criminal enterprise, a charge used to convince defendants to become government witnesses. So saying that Les Fuller was the kingpin was as good as saying that he was facing 10 years to life in prison with no possibility of parole, which achieved the desired effect of abject terror. While out on bond, the Cowboys scurried to their lawyers who had been carefully picked by Bill Trantham to see what deals they could make, and Les Fuller was the first to crack. Names and dates tumbled forth and subpoenas went out, bringing in Carlos Gerties and Raymond Hawkins, but Charles Foster was nowhere to be found and the name of Rex Cobble didn't appear anywhere on the subpoenas. Instead, the government began the cautious process of grand jury investigations, as many as three at a time, that subpoenaed records from Cobble's bank, the sales of his horses, and virtually all of his business enterprises, but not Rex himself. In Denton, Rex watched nervously as the parade of FBI agents dispatched by David Baugh went in and out of his bank, and he got reports from newsmen of Baugh's frequent references to his involvement in the case. Articles began appearing in papers around the state outlining the links between the smuggling operation and the Kabul Empire, information that Rex believed could have only come from the prosecutor's office. What Rex didn't know, however, was that Charles was about to serve himself up to the government and called a member of the smuggling ring named Willis Butler and told him to pass along the word to the other cowboys that they should put all the blame on him. Willis had already made plans for dealing with the government, and during the next week, he made a number of calls to Tennessee, pestering smuggling ring member Jamie Holland and financial backer John Ruppel to repay the money he had spent to outfit the boat that was raided. And it was the tapes that Butler made of these conversations that provided the principal evidence against John Ruppel and offered the strongest exculpatory evidence for Rex. 
Not long after, Willis finally went to the government and agreed to testify with the rest of the cowboys that Charles Foster was the kingpin. The, the choice wore on him so badly that he attempted suicide just a week before he was scheduled to testify, but survived. By the time the trial began in September 1979, the government had indicted 19 people, but after the negotiation and plea bargaining, only 12 of those indicted chose to stand trial. The rest pleaded guilty, testified for the government, or like Charles Foster, had never been found. The prosecutor, David Baugh, began by outlining the scale of the smuggling operation, estimating that 172,000 pounds of marijuana worth $34 million had been brought into the country by the defendants between August 1976 and December 1978. Three men were charged with the kingpin count of running a continuing criminal enterprise including John Ruppel, Carlos Gerdes, and a shipbuilder named Martin Sneed, while Ray Hawkins, Jamie Holland, and seven others faced conspiracy charges. And while the government prosecuted the defendants, the defense prosecuted Rex Cobble, a strategy formulated by some of the best narcotics lawyers in the country. They pointed out that the main government witnesses were all Cobble employees who had driven trucks full of marijuana to ranches belonging to Rex all over the state where the loads were divided and distributed. At one point, Jerry Goldstein, the most renowned marijuana lawyer in Texas at the time, asked the jury, quote, Has it occurred to you that everyone in this case connected to Cobble is either cooperating with the government or missing? The witnesses wanted to pin the tail on Charles Foster as he himself had suggested they do, but the lawyers kept pointing them to Rex. One of the cowhands working for the smuggling operation named Larry Dale Washington testified that Rex had paid him $5,000 that Foster owed him and that Rex had said he would take it out of Foster's money. Two other cowhands admitted on the stand that Rex had bailed them out of jail and paid for their attorneys, but none of them would testify that Rex's involvement went further than a vague guilty knowledge of what was going on everywhere around him. In the end, it wasn't a good defense. Although two of the defendants were acquitted by the jury and one of them, John Ruppel, appealed on a mistrial, nine of the twelve were convicted. By this point, the government assumed that Charles Foster was dead and the unspoken assumption was that Rex had killed him. Carlos Gerdes and another conspirator had refused to testify before the grand jury that was still looking into the smuggling operation and they were being held for contempt of court. But Foster wasn't dead. He was in fact alive and well, living in Bolivia and working in the lead pipe business in Santa Cruz, likely because Bolivia doesn't extradite people charged with drug offenses. Despite that, one day a couple of Bolivian policemen appeared at his door and asked him to come into town with them. They didn't go to town, however, and instead went to an airport and flew across the La Paz where an American narcotics agent was waiting for him. In Foster's absence, John Ruppel had been convicted in the marijuana case on several charges including that of continuing criminal enterprise. But because David Baugh hadn't revealed the terms of a government deal with two of his witnesses, the judge in the case granted Ruppel yet another trial. His third, and now that Foster was back, he would be tried with Ruppel, the aging millionaire. And going into the case, the prosecutor David Baugh had reason to be cocky, as since the beginning of the case, 22 people had been convicted and only two acquitted. There remained only his latest trial before he delivered his masterstroke, which he had been promising for more than a year now, the indictment of Rex Cobble. There was plenty of circumstantial evidence. In fact, the transcripts were overflowing with references to Rex's involvement. His entire approach to Rex had been laborious accumulation of facts and details, which were certainly damning, but not enough for a conviction. However, there was now one man whose testimony he was certain would clinch the government's case, Charles Foster, who would surely decide to flip. 
He was charged with seven counts of racketeering and possession with intent to distribute as well as continuing criminal enterprise. In every trial so far, the witnesses pointed to Foster as the kingpin and they could hardly change their stories now, but after Foster was convicted, he'd been facing 10 years to life with no parole and he would have to either testify against Rex or expect to grow old and die in prison. But he did have two options for defense. The first was to acknowledge that the case was hopeless and to make a deal with the government, so Foster's lawyer went to Ball before the trial to negotiate a plea. But Ba wasn't making any bargains. The more leverage he had on Foster, the better, and life imprisonment was good leverage. The second strategy for defense was the only defense available considering all the government witnesses and Foster's own loose statements. That was to plead insanity. Insanity is an old and reliable defense in cases of murder, assault, or any other kind of case involving a rash, ill-considered action, and given Foster's history of depression and hospitalization, he would be an easy candidate for acquittal in a case such as this. But the government wasn't charging Foster with doing something crazy. It was charging him with doing something clever, running the biggest smuggling operation in Texas for three years and making an extraordinary amount of money in the process. On its face, the insanity defense seemed ludicrous, and it certainly had never been offered in a smuggling case. The trial began on May 23, 1980, with the government's presentation of the criminal enterprise and David Baugh outlined the case from the day the monkey was purchased until the seizure of the Agnes Pauline. The jury retired to deliberate on June 3, 1980, and they reached a verdict a few moments after midnight at which point John Ruppel was convicted on four counts, although he was acquitted of continuing criminal enterprise while Charles Foster was found not guilty. And with Foster's acquittal, the foundation of David Baugh's entire case against Rex Cobble crumbled, but that wasn't the end of the story, because on August 7, 1981, Rex Cobble was named in a 10-count indictment by a federal grand jury which accused him of racketeering, bank fraud, and embezzlement. The indictment also accused him of interstate travel to further the commission of a felony. His trial began in early 1982, and on on paper, the evidence against Rex was overwhelming. Bank records showed multiple loans of tens of thousands of dollars to Charles Foster, which were always repaid with interest in lump sums. They also indicated several large cash deposits, which Rex also claimed were gambling winnings and cattle sales. But no records of those transactions could be produced. This seemed to the prosecution to be clear evidence that Rex was the financial backer of the operation. He lent the Cowboys money to secure the cargo, reaping the financial benefit from the interest along with a substantial fee for his services. And on January 29, 1982, Rex Cabo was convicted of all 10 counts. He was sentenced to 5 years on one count and 5 concurrent years for the other 9 counts. And on January 29, 1982, Rex Cabo was convicted of all 10 counts. He was sentenced to 5 years on one count and 5 concurrent years for the other 9. But while in prison, Cobble appealed his case and was released on good behavior after serving only seven years. He later died on June 23, 2003 at the age of 89. But that's really all I have for you guys today. Hope you all thoroughly enjoyed today's show and tune back in next week for episode 35. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating and follow the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at The Black Hand Pod. And feel free to reach out with feedback, suggestions, and comments. Also, please consider giving a little bit to the show's Venmo at the Black Hand Pod as well. But with that said, I hope you all have a great rest of your day. This is your host, Bliss Greaves, signing out.